I'm Ariane Elfant, and this is Death the Podcast. Death may be defined as the destruction or permanent end of something. At Death the Podcast, we are looking closely at what happens when something ends. We listen, learn about, and discuss the stories that surround the subject of death. These stories bring up much more than feelings of fear and sadness. They offer opportunities for connection, for hope, and sometimes even for humor. Ultimately, if we are open to exploring death, we create greater potential to experience life. My guest today is David Lobsa. In 2001, David and his wife, Lisa Holby, lost their first son, James, 20 weeks into Lisa's pregnancy. In 2015, David published the book, Walking Distance, Pilgrimage, Parenthood, Grief, and Home Repairs. This poignant memoir beautifully traverses the complex terrain of grief after stillbirth. Walking Distance was a 2016 Next Generation Indie Book Award finalist. David's written work has been featured in the Utney Reader and the New York Times column Modern Love. David is the head of the Theater Arts Department at St. Martin's University in Lacey, Washington, where he has been involved with teaching, acting, directing, playwriting, and film studies since 1989. I first read David's piece, My Son, A Pure Memory, in the New York Times Modern Love column in 2008. His story crossed my path again recently when I heard it read aloud on Modern Love, the podcast. On both occasions, I was struck with the realization that I have not heard fathers speak openly about the impact of losing a child in utero. This is such an important topic, and it is my pleasure to have David join us on Death the Podcast. Thank you, Ariane. It's good to be here. What initially motivated you to share your experience of losing James through your writing? <laughs> uh, well, I, I actually, I hadn't thought about uh, sharing it through writing for quite some time. But um, six years after we lost James, I was co-teaching a uh, creative writing class with two other people, and we decided to do each other's homework. And um, one of the assignments was a personal essay, and I in writing a personal essay, I thought, okay, well, here's something. I want it to be very close to the bone. I want it to be something that is emotionally important. And it seemed to me that if I was going to do that, I had uh, the choice between um, sex or death. And so death it was, uh, because my students were going to be reading this essay. So um, so I, I, I wrote about the experience. And um, then I, I let it sit on my hard drive for about a year, but I also, I showed it to my wife to, um, to say, you know, to check the facts. And um, she said that I really ought to get it published, that I really ought to share the story. And so uh, I finally did send it into the, um, to the New York Times and, uh, and they accepted it. Um, so I hadn't really planned on, on sharing it. I, you know, one of the things about it is that, uh, about this particular, kind of grief and loss is that it, it really does feel so private. There's no, um, there's no real public way of acknowledging or grieving a stillbirth or a miscarriage. Um, and so it, it hadn't occurred to me much as it hasn't occurred to many other people just because it doesn't seem like a, a socially, even a socially acceptable thing to do. And so, um, the essay itself uh, dealt with some of what happened when I told everyone 
at my work about it, um, which I did in a mass email, which was totally inappropriate. Um, but at the time, I was too frustrated and angry to care. And um, and what happened uh, after that was that um, people would come into my office and shut the door and burst into tears and tell me their own stories. And uh, I realized that this was something that we, we did need to share with one another, um, that it was too hard. It was just too hard. And so many people were carrying around so many stories. And then um, after the Modern Love uh, article came out, um, there was a huge response to it. And uh, again, it was it was something about why why aren't we why can't we talk about this in the in the public sphere? I started getting emails from all over the world, literally, as soon as the article was was published. Uh, people telling their stories, and uh, some of them had experienced a, a loss as as early as the week before. And one man wrote to me it had it had happened. Uh, 60 years before that he and his wife had lost their child and um, and he had never they had never discussed it he had never discussed it with anyone and uh, he said he was under the impression that this didn't happen to a lot of people and then he had to rethink that you know so um, so that that decision to to share it um, was a was a rather gradual thing for me um, and it involved a, a lot of breaking of social taboos along the way. Apparently, I, I, I don't think I'm I, I don't think I overshare all that much in my in my life. Um, well, maybe I do, but I, but I, uh, <laughs> I I didn't set out on a campaign to overshare with everyone, you mm-hmm. know. But it just it just seemed to to touch a nerve, and it it really seemed to um, to be something that people needed to hear something about. I mean, you mentioned that when you sent that email out, that that wasn't a socially appropriate thing to do to send it out to to. Everybody, to everyone, no. <laughs> to, ev- to everyone, and yet, <laughs> and yet, it, it it seems like it cracked open so much um, that yeah. ended up being healing for for people to be able to talk to you. I imagine, in some ways, for you, it sounds like as somebody who wants to connect, um, that 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 felt that that could feel good. W- was right. th- was there any negative backlash to your email? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Well, um, no, I mean, just just only appropriate stuff there. You know, some some people contacted my um, my department's administrative assistant and said, who the hell is this guy? (laughs) (laughs) Why why am I getting a personal email from this person? You know, so uh, um, it, it wasn't skillful. You know, mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. It, it, it had I if I'd had the means to um, to connect with people individually about it and let people know discreetly, I probably would have done that. But the fact was, I couldn't remember who we had told about the pregnancy and who we had not. And I could not bear the idea of going from office to office and dropping that story on people. Um, <laughs> you know, it's not just we lost someone, but you didn't know we were pregnant and now we've lost someone. But it makes a lot of sense. And I would imagine isn't um, isn't unusual in the circumstance you were in to not remember who you told, 
yeah. to be experiencing as as you so articulately put in your writing something that doesn't have a roadmap for how you go about what what you go about doing after that kind of loss right and then even the people you haven't told you've been impacted significantly by something that then nobody knows about yeah you shaking up the taboo really opened up the door for people to talk in in ways that that they needed to yes Yes. And then I was invited also to uh, to contribute to this book called They Were Still Born, which is a collection of uh, essays about uh, stillbirth from a, for, from people who have been through it. And uh, and and I felt that that was important as well. You know, that was uh, um, as some of the essays were by men, which was unusual. Um, mostly it's women who share their stories. But um, and it had it also had good information for people, you know, about about the prevalence of stillbirth and uh, and about the medical about medical information and that sort of stuff. So that was useful as well. Well, while on the subject of that uh, of that book, um, stillborn personal stories about stillbirth. So your chapter, two children, one living, um, where you write about your experience. Um, would you mind reading an excerpt from that chapter? When my father, who was just short of his 76th birthday, was killed in a car accident near my parents' home in upstate New York in the fall of 2007, nothing was easy exactly. I flew in from Seattle the next morning and as methodically as I could began the daunting process of helping my mother make arrangements, planning his funeral, settling his estate, sorting his things. Not easy to do, but at least it wasn't hard to figure out what had to be done. However sudden a death in the family may be, there are rituals to follow and a linear progression of tasks. First thing is to let people know. I sat with my mother, flipping through my parents' Rolodex, calling family and friends. However painful and awkward it may be to deliver such news, at least there's a script to follow. You tell them you have bad news. You tell them what happened. They say, I'm so sorry. And you say, thank you. They send flowers, they bring food, they put on sober costumes, they donate to a designated charity. They offer a handshake or an embrace and ask in low tones if there's anything they can do. At the memorial service, they gather to remember, to pay tribute, to comfort, but also they gather to send the family on their way, the dead to the earth or to the next life the living to adjust to their new lives as best they can. Like love, grief comes upon us. It happens to us. As with any force that acts on us, we may resist it or we may surrender to it, but either way, it changes us and it changes everything around us. The rituals of bereavement, however rote they may be, help us to recognize these changes. They orient us to the new landscape, and they point the way through the difficult terrain ahead. As we set out, we become agents in our own lives, not just passive receptacles for grief, but people who grieve. As such, it was much easier for me to grieve for my father than it was to grieve for James. How do you even start to go about grieving for someone who never lived outside the womb? Who do you call? Here's another excerpt. The hospital released James' body to the funeral home, 
and a few days later we went there to arrange for his cremation. The young man who helped us seemed just out of college. Wearing a cheap tie and an ill-fitting suit, it was clear he hadn't had much experience. Thinking perhaps that he could somehow normalize the situation, he tried to draw us into pleasant conversation. I nodded and said a few things in return, trying to put him at his ease, but Lisa just stared at him. Even under the best of circumstances, my wife does not suffer fools gladly, and it was plain she wanted to kill him. <laughs> Still chattering nervously, he showed us into a room that clearly had been design designed for large groups, extended families, to gather and plan elaborate services. Seating us at the enormous conference table, he offered us coffee. I declined politely as Lisa sobbed. After a moment, I suggested he should probably just get us the forms to sign. He excused himself, and we sat quietly for a while, just the two of us, staring at the vast expanse of table before us. Off to our left, a display case featured a selection of urns, religious urns, urns for two, marble urns, shiny metal urns, biodegradable urns. One had a motorized revolving top with a little landscape, boulders, a gnarled tree, and a bald eagle with wings outstretched. The motor made a little whirring sound, and with each revolution, the urn emitted a series of tiny squeaks, as if the mechanism were in need of a spot of WD-40. We burst out laughing. We had not quite contained ourselves by the time the young man returned with the forms. He stopped short in the doorway, as if he had somehow blundered into the wrong room. I waved him in, and, my shoulders still shaking, I signed the form authorizing James' cremation on the blank labeled father. It was the first time anyone had referred to me as a father, and I wondered whether it would be the last. I'm wondering, how, how do you feel like you and Lisa grieved differently? Mm. Uh, how did we grieve differently? I think everyone grieves differently. I, I think that's, that's one of the difficulties about being about losing someone, about losing a child, certainly, in a marriage. Um, and, uh, you know, for me, I, I wanted to throw myself right back into work as soon as I could. And uh, because I've always had some solace in that, uh, in the community of work. Um, and because it just feels better to me to be busy, I suppose. <laughs> Maybe I was running away from my own feelings. But, but Lisa just could not bear to be outside of the house for quite some time. And she threw herself into physical work in the, in the garden in our backyard. Um, but uh, I think she would have, uh, my sense is she probably would have grieved a lot longer than I did. And both of us would have been more in that state had Lisa not gotten pregnant again. And so it sort of felt as if uh, our grief wasn't ended so much as it was overruled. But for us, from our perspective, um, having been through that experience of losing James, of trying so hard to get pregnant the first time and then the second time and, and then going through all that uh, grief, I, I think it's, it's really intensified our, our joy in, in uh, parenting. You talked about in the, um, in the piece that you wrote for Modern Love, something about that James, 
that there there were there was a scar, but kind of a faint scar, mm-hmm. um, and that you wondered over time what that would look like. Yeah, right. I'm not saying it as beautifully as you. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, no, I, I I did use that that image at the end of it, uh, just wondering whether the scar would of you know that that James's. Uh, James was like a faint scar on my skin and wondering if it would go away as my skin aged and mottled and such, which it certainly is doing. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't, it does not feel like a scar to me anymore. It, uh, I, I guess this is a cliche, but people talk about you find your strengths where your wounds are. And, um, and it's it's been such a um, he was such a gift to us, you know, in that sense, such a a way of awakening to uh, to time and to connection uh, with others and um, and to the fullness of of living. I think that's in some ways that's what what loss does uh, or can do. Uh, for people sometimes. Um, and, and so I, I, no, I don't think of it as a, as a wound. I, I, I think of his, his loss as a, as a gift. So I guess I would use a, a different metaphor now, some years on from, uh, from writing that piece. Hmm. And I'm struck by, for you and, and Lisa, I know, I know there wasn't a ton of time between between James' death, loss, and the birth, and bringing into the world of of Benjamin, but mm-hmm. it does seem that y'all found a way to stick together in a kind of grief I can imagine can can um, can separate people, especially yes. men and women. Well, um, I think part of the reason for that was that we were we had been very deliberate about. Um, about setting up a home for a child. And we'd been very deliberate about working on our marriage in advance of becoming parents. We have such a good relationship as, as, uh, as partners, <laughs> in partners in projects, I mean, you know, and Benjamin, of course, is our project now, but, uh, uh, but in putting together a home, in, in doing that pilgrimage, we, we engage very well together in, in, um, in enterprises <laughs> such as that. So that's what we discovered. And, and even though uh, we were grieving at different rates and that was difficult, um, I think there was a level of uh, trust that we'd managed to establish before we went into that. And I think that's what, that's what got us through. It seems that way. It seems that, um, of course, none of us have any idea what's going to happen, but you guys did some prep work that a lot of a lot of couples wouldn't have been in that place in, in, yeah. ter- in terms of trusting each other. And that trust, I, I feel, is a good word for um, even the grief process. I mean, uh, given that we all do it differently, is part of it is trusting that you that that you're going to get through it, and that the the people you love will get through it too. Right, and and trusting that what they are doing about it is what they need to do. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yes. Uh, I mean, or or that they will get the help that they need. You know, I I think it's uh, that's so much of what happens in 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 a marriage is is you're 
you work on your own, you work on your own, uh, self and, uh, um, and you trust the other person to work on their self and maybe you give them a nudge every once in a while, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, as, as I have been, I have been nudged quite rightly, uh, a number of times in our relationship, we just enjoy each other's company and, and we enjoy it in the, the, it's not about doing special stuff. It's about, it's about, um, the, the really uh, daily details, the quotidian life of being at home that really suits us right now. You know, after all this travel, we talk about doing, going and walking distance, walking across Spain, et cetera, et cetera. We're, we're home now. And, and we like that very much. Thank well, you, you. <laughs> you, you, you did your walking and now, now you're nesting right. and connected to that. Yeah, that's we great. Walked some, we walked a great distance, and now most of our <laughs> life did walking distance, you know. <laughs> well, speaking of your book, um, Walking Distance, you reference the morality play Everyman. What spoke to you about this play in relation to what was going on in your life at that time? Oh, well, that's really it. directing Everyman was another way that I used it, it was I when I went back to work that was what I was scheduled to do ironically I was scheduled to do a play about death and um, and it it was a way of grieving for me um, it, every man is a play in which um, you know the main character is every man and death comes to visit him and says you have no more time left you're you need to make a pilgrimage to the grave and um, Every man is surprised, and <laughs> because he does, he does, he has no idea that uh, that he was going to die. Um, so uh, he's his assignment is to go and find what will come with him to the grave, and he goes, and he his friends won't come, and his family won't come, and his worldly goods has been lying to him, you know. Uh, so, um, but eventually, what what comes with him to the grave is his good deeds what he has done for other people in his life. When at the moment when he feels most abandoned, his good deeds is what steps forward to speak for him and to be with him. And um, so I, I was scheduled to direct this play and the way we directed it, the way we worked it was um, we're on a college campus. So we decided that if every man's gonna be on a pilgrimage, let's have the audience actually walk on a pilgrimage. So. Um, we had it at various places throughout the, the uh, college campus, you know, every man's friends were in the dorms and his family pulls up in an SUV and <laughs> all this other kind of stuff happening. And, you know, meantime, people are speaking 15th century verse. Um, uh, but it ends, it, the, uh, the production ended at the monk's graveyard at sunset. And so it was... It was a pretty powerful experience for people. It was, um, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a really lovely way to have a community of people acknowledging that um, that most of what we worry about is. Uh, but one of the quotes from the play is, "All earthly things are vanity." You know, <laughs> that, that most of what we worry about is is utterly trivial, and that uh, here we are, and we're only here for this brief moment. And um, maybe I, let me read the, uh, the, the very last um, bit of uh, walking distance because that relates to the production of Everyman. Great. It's a good story, I think. Um, 
When Ben was four, I decided to revive the production of Every Man that I had directed just after James died. And this time, instead of directing it myself, I asked John, the student who had played Every Man the last time, to come back and direct it. This time I was in the cast. I played Death. John and I decided that after the initial scene with Everyman, I should remain in character and reappear at various times throughout the rest of the play, always somewhere in the background of each scene, just to the edge of the audience's field of vision. At one point, as the audience walked through the woods on the way to the cemetery, I was about 50 yards to the side of the path, plainly visible. Sometimes no one saw me, but more often, someone would catch a glimpse of me, gasp, and point me out to others. Lisa brought Ben to the show, and I wanted to prepare him, so I explained that I was playing a scary guy, but a good one, and that he shouldn't worry. But I needn't have worried myself. For him, the show was like a game of Where's Waldo in 3D. <laughs> and when the audience walked through the woods, I saw Ben catch sight of me, and I heard him shout triumphantly, There's my daddy! <laughs> I'm no different from anyone else. I have no reason to believe that I'll actually achieve enlightenment or that when it comes time for me to die, I won't be just as ignorant, astonished, and incensed about it as every man. But I hope that I will have the people I love near me right up to the very end. And I have this dream that with a lot of practice, when that end actually arrives, I just may, might be able to do it differently. In my dream, when death comes for me, whether I see him from a ways off or whether he drops by quite suddenly, I will be glad to see him in the same way my son was delighted to spot me, the dark but familiar figure in the forest. I will welcome death like an old friend, and he and I will settle down and assess the number and extent of my kindnesses to others and how I have enjoyed in turn their kindnesses to me and death and I, intimate at last, after all my years of trying to keep him at arm's length, will break bread together on the occasion of my departure from the empty Lenten house of my body. It's a powerful dream. I had this odd feeling maybe uh, a year after we lost James of realizing that there was something special about the state of grief, that there was something that was important about it. And um, it, it wasn't that I missed grieving. Grieving is painful. It, but there was a consciousness around it that I, that I missed. And, and um, so that's what, this, that's what this excerpt from the book um, relates to. So I'll just go into it. Um, and this is, uh, I'm talking about going to work. Driving down the interstate, I felt myself in a kind of altered state, not above the flow of daily life, but just below it, heavy, settled, still. There's a deeper reality just under this one. Like every man, we are, all of us, on a pilgrimage to the end of the world. And we know it, but it's hard to remember. Certainly the very ill and the very old remember. Perhaps people who pray remember more often. And then there are people who grieve, 
When you grieve, you remember. This remembering puts a distance between you and those who are not grieving. The language of their country is not the language of your country. You become a stranger passing through and you are on fire. Everything is on fire. Hmm. So that's, that's what that's from. And the, the last bit about things being on fire actually comes from, uh, there's a famous ser- sermon of the uh, Sutta of the, of the, the Buddhas, uh, which is the fire sermon, where he talks about everything in the world is on fire. It's, it's, all, it's all changing. It is all um, uh, coming apart and reforming so rapidly. And, and we don't see it. We don't see it. Um, but when you grieve, you see it. You see how, how uh, fragile everything is and how connected everything is, I think. So, so through that lens, and that's a really powerful image of, of seeing fire, were you were you aware when you shifted when you shifted back to a non grief state where things <laughs> weren't on fire? Uh, it's it's uh, well it's gradual uh, I think and uh, I, I just I just think as human beings we have uh, a rather astonishing and unfortunate capacity to be able to revert at any moment from uh, consciousness of our place in the universe and our connection with one another and all of the amazing, profound aspects of life to worrying about what's going to, about trivia, about worrying about... Vanity. What, yeah, (laughs) vanity, yeah. What am I, you know, I, 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 this... My lunch is not good enough. I don't know, you know, <laughs> but it's just, uh, it just, it, there's, <laughs> so I, I don't, uh, this, it's not that you should hold on to grief. It's just that it's that, uh, it's that grief is such a powerful reminder. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and as I've been studying, um, uh, Buddhist uh, texts and commentaries on Buddhism over the last few years, um, that's the, that's the, the, a lot of the gist of it is just to remember, to remember constantly that things are always changing, that things are always in flux. Um, and, uh, and that, that, uh, grief is a part of it. Mm-hmm. Well, that seems like a great, a great place to stop. Thank you so much for being on the show. This was really, really nice. It's a pleasure. The word death evokes all sorts of personal feelings, images, and stories. These stories are amazing, and sharing them connects us more fully to life. I'm Ariane Alfont, and you have been listening to Death the Podcast. Join us for our next episode in this series. This show is produced and engineered by Eric Merle. Our associate producer is Jill Gross. Our theme music, It Happened, is written by David Milling and is performed by David Milling and Charles Milling. To hear more of David's music, go to his website, davidmilling.com. Our social media director is Jolie Robichaud. If you're listening to this on iTunes or Stitcher or some other podcast app, if you could take a moment to rate and review us, that helps other people find us. You can find Death the Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or at deaththepodcast.com. Death the Podcast is a production of INO Broadcasting.
You know Labor Day signals the unofficial end of summer, but not the end of your outdoor projects. Lowe's helps you do it right and helps you save with Labor Day deals throughout the store. Shop now and get two bags of Stay Green Potty Mix for $12. And keep your lawn looking neat and trim with a Craftsman 2-Cycle 17-inch gas string trimmer now $20 off at just $119. Whatever's still on your to-do list this Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 828. Soil offer excludes Alaska and Hawaii, U.S. only.